0: You know what that sound means. I am Mitch Maley with the Bradenton Times, and we are back with another episode of the Bradenton Times podcast. And my guest this week is Dr. Christy Scoglin with the Florida Center for Early Childhood. Thank you for joining us, Christy.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. And Christy has been a licensed mental health counselor since 2000 and is recognized as an infant mental health endorsed professional by the states of Michigan and Florida. She has a master's degree in psychology and counseling and a doctorate degree in the same field. In 1997, Sarasota County became the first county in Florida to privatize child welfare, and Christy was hired as a mental health counselor working with young children in the foster care system. She's completed the 18-month infant mental health training through Florida State University's Harris Institute, and in 2003, she received specialized fetal alcohol spectrum Disorders Diagnostic Training through the University of Washington. She has formal training in child parent psychotherapy and is a trained facilitator of the Circle of Security Parenting Program. Christy has expertise in the areas of infant and young children's mental health, trauma-informed care practices, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and has presented workshops on various related topics at local, state, and national conferences. She's happily married with boy-girl twins and is a native Floridian. All right. What a resume.
1: Wow. Yes, I was... Yeah, I didn't realize I did all that. Very impressive.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm particularly interested in the... Fetal alcohol spectrum. Uh, we were talking a little bit briefly before the podcast started, and I was explaining that my family had taken in foster care children all throughout my life, and we'd had somewhere over a dozen uh, through the years, and then several of them, three of them, became adopted siblings and are still around. And, uh, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to see a lot of positive outcomes that probably wouldn't have have worked that well otherwise. And uh, we actually, during that time, I recall two children who had fetal alcohol syndrome and Mm. the challenges that that presented uh, just, just an awful array of, you know, deficits that, that going through education uh, and even, you know, just basic assimile to society was so incredibly challenging for them. And so my heart goes out to any person that, you know, comes into the world with that, you know, sort of challenge on top of everything else the world presents. Uh, so I can only imagine someone that's specialized in that field. You know how much you've seen, and and hopefully you've you've seen enough success stories that you know it gives you the strength to move forward. But that's got to be one of the most difficult things about a career field like yours is you're you're almost exclusively dealing with really hard cases of, of people who who uh, haven't been blessed with. The you know just initial um, circumstances in life that most of us are fortunate enough to to not even think about.
1: Yeah, you know, you bring up a, a great point. We we come into this world, and and not all of us are are fortunate enough to be born into homes that are financially um, secure or or parents that have good parenting practices or have experiences themselves of being uh, parented. In a healthy way. And so they come into this, these families, and unfortunately, some of them, um, they are are not treated as they should, they're, they're mistreated, they're neglected, um, they even prenatally uh, are exposed to things that um, are going to impact them lifelong. And not only are they going to impact the child lifelong, but they're going to impact society. So when we talk about um, we talk about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, for instance, as you brought up, as it's a it's a, one of the top public health crises, honestly, in our country because we have so many children. At least one in twenty children um, have this disability, and it, and the disabilities are are um, numerous. Right? We could get into a long conversation about what that looks like. Um, but we have these children walking around in our schools, and not all children who are prenatally exposed to alcohol have fetal alcohol syndrome. That's the most severe impact. But many of them have the effects of the prenatal exposure to alcohol, but they walk around looking typical like yeah. you know any other child, and yet their brains are very different, and, um, and they're treated uh, as if there's something wrong with them, and no one really understands what's going on and, and what, how their brain is different. We call it a brain difference. It's definitely... Uh, a a neurobehavioral um,
0: disability yeah that's one of those things that I I'm very grateful that science has allowed us to better understand that you know I think we we've had this for hundreds of years uh, we've had this sort of Judeo-Christian mindset that we all kind of start off in the same place and it's all just comes down to the decisions we make and the, the responsibility we take for them but as we become more and more aware of as you said there's a myriad of of prenatal exposures everything just from conflict you know mm-hmm. we're learning now that that you know uh if if a child is you know during um pregnancy is exposed to a tr- tremendous amount of conflict from the hormonal aspect but then also just from the 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 noise and all the things that can be around that and how much that could even impact and then you put it together with some of the you know pure more physiological deficits that some people could have i think i think we know now better than ever we not not only financially and you know in terms of uh how well the parenting is in that standpoint but from the second we come into this world we don't start in the same place not even close
1: not even close no and You know, as children grow, right? The first five years, we know, and that that my organization organization certainly understands that the first five years are the most important, um, and what happens in those first five years can set the foundation. But if you come into this world already compromised, right? Because your your brain was not set up for success, then you are going to be at a deficit from the get go. And so as children enter enter preschool and then they enter elementary school, that's when we really start to see the challenges come about. And, you know, schools aren't set up to to really fully understand what's going on. They just see a behavioral challenge and it's disrupting the teacher's ability to to teach their their class. And so then all these tests start happening. What they're doing is they're really addressing the symptoms, but we're really not getting to the root of the problem. And that's what um, we try to do with all of our services, really, is look at what Where is this coming from? How can we get to the bottom of it? How can we really rewrite um, and create new pathways, not only for the child, but also heal the family um, through the work that we do?
0: And I have to imagine that one of the things that makes it difficult is the overlap that you, you certainly find with nature nurture in a lot of those environments, because if someone let's say is a a greater candidate to have had, you know, fetal alcohol exposure, um, or, uh, you know, conflict, um, the other part is that that's probably going to correlate with less, uh, uh, less high end parenting happening in the household and so forth. So you have, uh, this sort of thing of the the person who's most likely to start with that deficit for physiological reasons is then in most cases more likely to have that compounded by the lack of nurturing and parenting that's happening in the house. Would you agree?
1: A hundred percent, yes. So, you know, a lot of the kids that have these challenges, right, they're in homes where parents aren't necessarily um, they don't know what it is that they're dealing with and oftentimes it can just be seen as willful disobedience. And so what do we do with that? We punish, we take things yeah. away and when um, we understand what's happening, we can um, we can do things differently. We can create what we call accommodations. We can um, our, our perception of the issue changes. so we're not looking at the child as doing bad things. We're looking at, at the child as someone who needs help, who needs support, Um, who needs us to kind of create an environment where they can be successful and interact with them in a way that all parties are less stressed. So um, helping to create these accommodations, um, understanding the expectations, putting less expectations on the child than we might put on another child that's maybe the same age and understanding what they're capable of doing um, and not doing um, pictures on, on a dresser, you know, these are where your shirts go. Like simple things like that um, can really help children stay organized and just creating those types of accommodations go a long way.
0: Yeah. There's probably, you know, as a parent, I would say there's probably nothing that was as confounding and frustrating as when a child has, for lack of a better term, a blind spot to one area where, where they're just really struggling to excel uh, and you can't find a way to motivate them. And you try with positive reinforcement, and you try then with negative reinforcement. Um, and I guess that's probably the most frustrating is when you see that the child is impacted by the negative consequence, and you, you take away whatever, their their phone, or their, their favorite game, or whatever the case is, and you see that they, they want that game back. They don't want to lose it, but there, you just can't get it to line up with the the choice of behavior that that you're trying to inspire, we have to then start to look at, maybe it's not a choice of behavior then.
1: Well, that, that would be very wise of, of a caregiver to think that way, right? In, in my world as a early childhood mental health professional, we have kind of this mantra that we can't treat what we yet don't understand. So we have to seek to understand, and oftentimes we judge, and we assume, we understand, oh, they're just not, they're willfully not doing whatever. We've told them a billion times. They can even tell me what it mm-hmm. is they're supposed to do correctly. So why aren't they doing it? Um, sometimes, you know, we have a higher degree of, of expressive language than we actually have in terms of adaptive functioning, that ability to get through our day and do the things that we're supposed to do. We can say all the right things, but we may not be able to, to do them in the way that others expect us to. So... Um, those that are kind of typically or neurotypical, if you will, like the caregivers might say, well, they already know what to do. Why aren't they doing it? And so if we can really try to understand um, what that child needs from us as caregivers and also recognize when the problem is really ours as a caregiver, like is, is this really stressing the child out or is it really distressing me out? And then we need to take a brain break and say, you know what, we're stressed out and we're not our, high, our highest and best in this moment and our child needs us to be our highest and best. They need us to support, help them and support them and not um, berate them and criticize them. Because if a child, all they hear is, no, don't quit, stop, always, right? Instead of, you know, I know you tried really hard. Thank you for trying really hard, even if they didn't accomplish what we wanted them to. So it goes a long way if we are uh, are in touch with our own internal state as a, as a caregiver.
0: Right. I think probably the, the most challenging part is that, our own perspective, our own experiences is what informs our expectations. So if we look at something as a matter of just discipline, self meaning self-discipline of, oh, if you really want to do that, you'll prioritize it in a way because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, don't want the consequence, you'll make a different choice because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And when we kind of impose our own, you know, uh, status quo on other people, again, probably coming from that that old drilled in sort of aspect that we all start the same, then that's probably the thing that we have to peel away the most. And and I guess societally, what we could take more from the science of what we're learning is that we, again, we all don't start the same and we all have very, very different skill sets in terms of there are some things like, there are some things my son can do that that on a high level that I could never even dream of um but then there's some you know (laughs) if you give him three tasks he will forget at least one maybe (laughs) two of them uh that's a blind spot there um I don't understand it but I also know that Mm -hmm. there's somebody that tries very hard is very successful Mm -hmm. and even though this one thing that seems easy for me is very difficult for them there's other things that seem very difficult for me that they can do well and we have to kind of get in that mindset of of you know Again, we're all born with different strengths. Uh, we're all socialized with, to, to have you know greater strengths and deficiencies. And the people that we encounter that aren't our children, then we have to look and say, we have no idea. You know, even with our children, they perplex us, mm-hmm. right? So, if somebody that we're so incredibly invested in from the time they're born uh, can go through twenty years of, of existence with them and and they can utterly confound us almost nonstop, then How are we ever to, you know, really have a good idea of anyone else that we encounter that we didn't have that kind of intimacy with and know sort of where their deficiencies might have come from or or what they might have been missing, you know, along the way?
1: Yeah, what you're talking about is really just being understanding of of human differences, right? Our children are going to be different than we are. So even a neurotypical child is going to be different than their parent. I think, you know, parents often think they're just mini versions. Right. You know, you hear parents, oh, that's me. You know, they have their dad's personality, but they look like me. And, you know, they're really their own human. Yes, the DNA contributed to who they are, but they are their own person. And so we have to understand Who they are. And, you know, sometimes there's a mismatch. The parent and the child are very different. Their temperaments are different. And sometimes they're just not jiving. And um, we have to understand how that affects us as parents that, you know, I'm not sure that I really can relate to this child um, the way that I want to. And that becomes more of the parent's issue to resolve than the child because the child just is doing who they being who they are.
0: Now, one of the things that your organization is involved in that I wanted to ask you about today uh, as I was doing some research is the Early Childhood Court. Can you tell us a little bit more about that program? Because that sounds like a fantastic sort of intervention that I can imagine fostering better outcomes.
1: I would love to tell you about the Early Childhood Court. So um, I will start by saying the Early Childhood Court is an initiative um, in the state of Florida. Uh, there are actually 20, as of, as of 2021, there are 27 early childhood courts in Florida. Just about every circuit, um, not all, but just about every circuit has an early childhood court in some shape, form, or fashion. Um, I will say that there are no state dollars currently um, dedicated to fully fund the early childhood court, so every circuit that has an early childhood court it might look a little different because um, every circuit has had to figure out how to fund mm. their early childhood court. I'll put that out there. Um, so the early childhood court started out as a, um, a research and, um, um, project through the national organization zero to three. They did um, something called the safe baby court teams and they researched um, these safe baby court teams. They did two national independent studies um, to look at this intensive model um, for young children birth through five who enter the foster care system to see how outcomes might be improved for um, young children who are removed from their primary caregiver's home, placed in either foster care or relative care. And if we if we put in intense services, if we got them in front of the judge on a regular basis on a monthly basis, which is more frequent than than would be typical, if we if we throw in an infant mental health clinician who is working with the parent and the child together doing intense deep family trauma work cuz obviously there's something going on if you've gotten to the point where your children are removed from your care what is happening there for you and what's your story if we get an infant and early childhood mental health clinician involved if we're in front of the judge more often if we're having meetings at the ta- every month to talk about where you're at in your journey Um, to reunify with your children. And we're getting all the players at the table on a monthly basis. So no grass is growing under anybody's feet. We're all talking, we're all communicating. And then all of this is led by a community coordinator who is looking at blind spots, gaps. What do we need to do to help the family? Let the family tell us where we're not helping them in the way that they need. Because as professionals, we're not the experts. We know what we know, but the parent can tell us what they need from us and maybe what we can do differently to support them. Um, in their own special way, are there things that we're looking, we're not looking at? Um, is the parent capable of doing this? All of these things that we're asking them to do, or do they need assistance in some ways, not just financially, but just even logistically getting there, even understanding what it is that they're supposed to do and where to go? So these, um, this early childhood court was looked at and. Um, and basing it in, in what's called attachment theory, understanding that young children birth to five need a forever home. They need to be in their permanent placement as quickly as possible because those first five years are so important in terms of connection and, 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 and connecting with their primary caregiver, their parent, so to speak. We need them to be where they're going to be forever as quickly as possible. So. We, the research looked at this, and, and after, at the end of, of, of all of the research, um, the outcome was, outcomes were amazing. Um, the amount of money, not only that was saved, right, in early, um, le- leaving the system early, right, getting back home, the amount of money we spent on board rates and just the, the case managers and all of the, the judicial, like everything that goes into supply, supporting a child in the foster care system, all of those things were ended sooner than later. So um, not to mention the trauma, right that was healed, the work that was being done to help heal the family trauma and help get these help these families understand what got them here, how their own traumatic experiences have gotten them to the place where they've lost custody of their children, and how they can connect with their children in different ways, ways that maybe they weren't connected with um, when they were when they were younger, and really, really heal that multi-generational, transmission of trauma and help these families get off to um, a successful, healthy start. So that's, um, Early Childhood Court was then adopted by um, Florida, many other states, and of course, ours is called Early Childhood Court because Safe Baby Court Teams is um, copywritten. And so um, the Early Childhood Courts follow this model. It really is a model that has um, core components of judicial leadership and all of these other things um, that helped to make it a successful court. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there. So I, well, let I'm me sure let me have ask some you. Questions. Yeah,
0: the first one would be you, you raised an interesting point with the getting them into the forever home as soon as possible because uh, that was one of the most frustrating experiences that I know my parents had as foster parents were the reluctance of the courts, even in the most obvious cases where you had a parent that there was no indication that there was a will, let alone adequate effort, to get to a place where they could properly parent their child. There was still such a reluctance to ever remove the parental rights that I could recall, in fact, my brother Bobby wasn't adopted until he was an adult. Um, and the reason was he, he wanted to become a member of the family and have her name. His mother had never lost parental rights even though we knew he was going to be with us for life. I mean, there was never, ever any, like, you know, sort of wonder in our mind whether or not, you know, he was he was going to be pulled from our family. Um, and that was one of the things that I noticed, the 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 difficulty with the children that were in that scenario, we had, we'd had several of them, that they there was an anxiety because there there's this sort of, uh, there's this mindset that, I'm not where I'm going to wind up. I'm not sure where exactly I'm going to wind up. I hope it's A, B, or C. Um, But there never seemed to be enough permanence in their life. And everything seemed to be, you know, they they seemed confounded by this temporary station that went on so long. And that status of not feeling permanence seemed to be very traumatic to me because it was something that would come out and when they would act out and the things they would say and so forth. Um, Have you noticed a, in Florida and, and with the early childhood courts, have you noticed, are we getting better at that? Are we getting better at identifying that when someone is not going to be a candidate to, you know, return to their family that we're exercising the ability to remove those paternal rights and.
1: Yes. So, so, the, the goal, if I were to say there's an overarching goal of early childhood court, it is to um, expedite permanency. Now, you notice I didn't say expedite reunification. Yes. Right? So re- reunification is our first permanency goal. We always want to try to reunify childhood. All else being equal, parents. I think we'd
0: all agree that that is the best outcome when possible.
1: That was, yes. Um, however, we know it's not always possible. So um, permanency is the goal. Expedited permanency. I can tell you in, um, circuit 12, Sarasota Bradenton or Manatee DeSoto, um, our, our permanency, uh, rates are out of this world phenomenal. We are getting children into their forever homes, um, at six to eight months, right? So under nine months and, uh, the state average is, I want to say it's around, it's over 12, right? So we have, we have, the state has a um, mandate to for the parents to kind of complete their their case plan tasks, and that permanency is established for this child for every child in the foster care system within 12 months. That's the state goal. Um, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen often. And matter of fact, we've got children that have been in the system way longer than not not in early childhood court, but in the traditional track of the child welfare system. Far longer, some years, right, where if the mandate is 12 months, but because of lots of circumstances, that can be extended. So I know, you know, Tax Watch um, actually um, pinned early childhood court as being a huge cost savings for the state of Florida. So they're they're saying if we transition to a full ECC early childhood court model, we would save over $113 million annually. We We spend $13 billion on our child welfare system as it is, So, and, and then of that 113 million, 11 to 15 of that is on board rates alone. So if you Mm. think about foster care board rates, if we could eliminate those sooner than later, we would be saying board rates are are the amount of, of, um, of, um, compensation that foster parents receive for caring for children in foster care.
0: Now, let me ask you the next question. Uh, one of the things that was probably the most, unfortunate part of our experiences was seeing and hearing from um, children that we fostered that were in multiple homes first. Uh, I mean, look, my house was sometimes a zoo. My parents weren't perfect uh, by any means, but the experience as it was described to us was, wow, this is like Disneyland compared to what we're used to. Um, There was not, this is growing up in Pennsylvania in the 80s and 90s, there was not an adequate supply, if you will, of qualified, well-intentioned foster homes. Uh, and there was an excess of, um, you know, people that were in it for exactly the wrong reasons. And uh, that that was probably one of the most challenged parts of the whole approach. How do you find our community rates in terms of uh, having a supply of qualified, foster parents and, and is the supply and demand anywhere close to being aligned
1: so I will I will first say that the Florida Center is not in the we don't license or or um, we're not in the business of, of foster parent or mm-hmm. licensing foster homes we have a contract with our local community-based care organization the Safe Children Coalition who does all of that and in partnership with them we do the early, we, we provide services for the early childhood court. And in in, um, conversations with that partner, we certainly hear, and I think the community knows, that there is a a shortage of foster parents, right? There's never enough. Um, I do know, after being in this field for as long as I have, um, that we have come a long way at – Finding foster parents that are in it for the right reasons in our circuit that are—it is a thankless job, as you probably know. Um, The amount of money that they get doesn't nearly cost what. Yeah, that was one thing we ran
0: up against. Was it was very obvious, very quick. This is going to cost money. If you're if you're going to raise the children right, it's going to cost money.
1: Anybody who says foster parents are in it for the money don't understand what they actually are getting paid because it's not nearly enough to support. Um, what it is that they have to do. and and I would say the vast majority dip into their own mm-hmm. um, finances to help support the the cost. And so um, I know our, our there are multiple licensing entities in our community that license foster families, and they're all phenomenal, and they do a great job at uh, screening and finding um, qualified foster homes, but there's never enough, never enough.
0: So- Let me ask you a side question that I think will relate to your background. Uh, and this is something I'm just very curious about, what are you finding, and I know it's we're in the very early stages of it, but in w- the the challenge field that, that you deal with, what are you finding some of the impacts of the pandemic have been and the way that that's drastically changed the way these children get to socialize, get to do different things? I have to imagine that we see the tremendous impact it's having kind of across the board, but in these populations in particular, I have to imagine that's a compounded effect.
1: Mm-hmm. COVID has created um, many challenges. Um, in terms of the mental health uh, arena, what we've seen, and, and we're not, I don't think we're unique in, in just talking with some of my colleagues who do the work, um, the, the, the issues that family, children and families are experiencing are bigger and more severe since the pandemic. Um, they're just more intense, they're heavier, the stress of the family is heavier. And we know that when the parents are stressed, it impacts the children. There's a higher incidence of, of domestic violence, substance use, and children are impacted by that. Children have experienced death of family members. Um, close family members that they weren't able to say goodbye to because we weren't able to go into hospitals and say goodbye. So um, there, was, there was a time where a lot of children, you know, I think with one of the variants, um, where a lot of children were being impacted and um, sick, and we have um, heard of children having lost friends. So um, some children have been removed from school altogether as a result of the pandemic, and parents have just decided to homeschool them. Um, so it's disrupted their lives. And, and parents, when they're stressed, they're not always good communicators because you know when we're stressed, we just want our kids to fall in line because when they do, we're, we're less stressed. And children don't do that. They sense when we're stressed and so um, and then the parents react and it's just this domino effect. So um, what we've seen is the need to increase services. The, the typical one hour a week is not enough. We need to give them that extra hour and sometimes even more because the issues are just so severe and the parents are so stressed. Um, a lot of school-based issues, children having struggles in, in school, um, struggles communicating, struggles behaving, focusing. Um, again, just, just more and more often.
0: Do you think, and again, this is a little bit outside of, of- – the scope of what you're doing, but I, I find it fascinating because of your background and all the things you deal with and, and as both of us being parents. Um, culturally, are there things we need to do better? When I look at some of the coping mechanisms that we lack as a society or that we seem to be getting worse at, and then I look at how other cultures outside of America, and particularly outside of the West, uh, sort of arm themselves with better techniques... I'm a big proponent, for example, of meditation. And in my life, you know, meditation and exercise, I find is something that we kind of set And nutrition. Uh, those three things together are so responsible for how people tend to react and act in situations because they, outside of those larger things that we're talking about in nature and nurture, on a day-to-day basis, how we're managing those things are going to have a tremendous amount of impact on how we react to stressful environments. So when you have someone who's fit, who uh, exercises regularly as a way to alleviate stress, who is skilled at being able to conjure presence in the moment through meditation and being able to uh, impact their, their stress responses through meditation and is sort of armed with those tools, I find them, I find myself using them so much in life I wonder how people don't. So when I look and I see somebody who's, you know, instead it's caffeine, alcohol, bad food, and the rush, rush, rush of the day, and then it's no real surprise that that person is often screaming and losing their control mm-hmm. and acting out in different ways. Um, are, there, are there a lot of things, do you think, that we're missing culturally that that could together have a pronounced impact?
1: That boy, well, that's a big question. Um. You know, obviously, I, I don't disagree that all of those things are, are really, really helpful. And if um, there there is something I think within 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 the individual who is able to be intentional about um, just being healthy, healthy in the mind, healthy in the body, um, healthy in thoughts, right? What I think about when I, when I, when I meet people who are not able to do that, What I found is that many of them, not all, but many of them, um, when I look at their, when I I understand where they've come from, and again, this is not a general thing, but a, a majority of folks have childhood experiences and life experiences that have brought them to a certain place in life where they are just trying to survive, and You know, we know when we get when we see families come to us that need our our support, we can immediately say like, well, if they just did this and they did that and they did this, they would be in a better place. Mm -hmm. But many of them aren't able to do that because if they could, they would, right? So when we understand that, I'm not sure if you've had anyone on the show talk about the ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So if we understand the adverse childhood experiences and what those actually do to people, so adverse childhood experiences really quick, um, it, it's a longitudinal uh, study that was done many moons ago, um, and it's one of the largest studies that were done.
0: And there, there's markers, right? And as soon as you go past two of them, go ahead. The
1: more yeah. adverse childhood yeah. experiences that you say yes to yeah. on this screener, the more likely the more impact it has on your health, and, uh, and, and even your, your mortality rate, right. Mm-hmm. You, your life expectancy. Because I remember some of
0: them like neglect and then abuse and neglect, yeah.
1: abuse, um, live, growing up in a home where you had a parent who was an alcohol, um, mm-hmm. user or drug user growing up with a parent who was incarcerated, parent with mental illness, divorce is even one of them. So there's 10 markers and the more you say yes to like four or more actually, um, you, there, are, there are certain implications, right? And it doesn't mean that you're, you're doomed, right? It just means if you know these things, then you can do things in your life to help kind of um, mitigate right. those risks. But when we, when we have families in our, in our office and they're like, oh, I, I'm working, they're working, barely getting paid. They're worried about getting you know, that their, their bills paid. They're worried about their housing. When you're at that base level of survival, like you're just stressed mm-hmm. beyond stress, The idea of doing these like high level things, right, that are going to we know that are going to keep us sane and keep us healthy. Your brain can't even go there because it's so hijacked by the stress of your child um, doing well in school and the behavior of your child, the fact that you might lose your job, you might lose your housing. So all of these things um, get in the way, understandably. And so if we can help get those kind of bottom rung of the hierarchy, if you will, Maslow's hierarchy, Mm -hmm. if we can help those kinds of things um, help families get to a place where those things are set, we're recovered, and you don't have to worry about those things anymore, and that's referrals and, and getting them connected to the right people, then we can work on, okay, now that we have those things in place, how do we get you to a place where you can be healthier in your mind and your thoughts and, and work on your parenting? Because we do parenting. We do a lot of work with parent-child relationships, but I can't be the best parent I can be if I'm worried that I might – get my lights turned off tomorrow. That's just too high level. That's like, whatever I'll get there, but I need my lights on. Mm -hmm. So that's where my mind goes, right? We want to get them to that place, but we have to understand that their life experience has brought them to this place where they're just treading water and about to drown.
0: Yeah. That's a great analogy for treading water. That was literally (laughs) what I was thinking in my mind is that's what too many people in our society are doing right now is uh, they, and it, Again, it comes back a lot to me. The the tool it it blows my mind that we don't teach meditation in elementary school. Mm. You know, and the ability to uh, still the voices in our head. You know, I remember reading once about a neuroscience neuroscientist explaining that language was the you know after developing the ability to throw things, language was the next giant evolutionary victory for human beings. And it was language that allowed the sort of cooperation that then sort of, you know, just jumpstarted, you know, our ability, to, everything from agriculture to engineering and so forth. When we can go beyond simple grunts to expressing something, so the reward for it, language and and a monologue was so great, and that's where ideas are born, that's where inventions come from. So even the eternal monologue language was so important that the mind basically never turns it off. And as a result, then we, when there's nothing really to think about, we often feed it with the things that we're worried about. Uh, And then you look at, you know, the first 300,000 years of human, modern human existence, we were primarily in a environment where we were constantly, we were all treading water. You know, it was don't get eaten and find food and try to have, you know, kids that will survive and not get eaten, And that was it. And that took 100% of your, your waking energies. And I remember a uh, uh, cognitive um, psychologist at Penn in this symposium I was sitting in on one time was talking about how, you know, one of the unfortunate parts of evolution is it takes a very, very long time uh, it, until it rewards sort of a modern environment. So he said, you know, we're still sitting here with mostly... Skill sets that are designed for that really awful sort of you know just do everything to survive in every moment life that humans had through most of that time and a lot of our reactions are based on that you know and he he used Mm -hmm. the analogy he said that the Eastern world knew this when they came up with the concept of paper tiger is you know when you have that deer caught in headlights moment where you say oh I just froze he's like that's literally a biological response where blood leaves your head and moves to your butt and your legs because thinking in most of those moments if there's a tiger in the bush thinking for a second is going to get eaten and the only thing you're going to be able to do is run climb jump or something like that so the blood goes to where you're going to need it and we're still responding to things like next month's mortgage payment as if it's a tiger in front of us often That's right. and uh trying to learn to you know, tell our body and and condition ourselves, oh, okay, this is a primitive response. You know, we're laying in bed at night and that voice is, you know, just showering us with all the possible things that we might ever go wrong. Um, You know, even though 99% of them we probably won't have to deal with. uh, That's this weird thing that was there for a long time as a necessity. And now we don't need it as much, but we have to kind of come in touch with that. So developing those coping mechanisms become you know, very, very important in modern life.
1: Yes. So yes, you're right. I mean, the learning how to handle stress when it comes to us, right. That's, I mean, anxiety is huge. Anxiety Mm -hmm. is the, the disorder that likes to accompany everything, regardless of what other issues you might have, ADHD, depression, anxiety is always there. And if we, you know, meditation, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a, it's, it's amazing. Um, Children, we know the research shows that children who can meditate, they are better regulated in school. They focus better, and I will give a little plug for um, Sarasota County. I know this is Bradenton Times, but I know that Sarasota County has initiated the um, the Laura Bakosh and the Inner Explorer, which is a meditation app that children can use. All the teachers have access to it. Oh wow! And yeah, I'm very yes. very pleased to hear that. So yes. I was
0: just uh, I was just doing a story on the community partnership school at Manatee Elementary, and they had so many wonderful services in there. So it's a great program in which they've got mental health wrapped in, they've mm-hmm. got a clinic there, they've got a regular health clinic so that you know the predominantly lower income Title I school students, uh, one of the biggest challenges they would find were things like, hey, if one of the parents has to take them to a doctor's appointment, they're usually having to take off part of the work day that they're not getting paid for, they're not bringing them back. Um, you know, they, they can't work that in. So one doctor's appointment means a whole day off school. If we could get them into the doctor here and yeah. then we could telemed to the parent on a work break, yeah. they don't have to take off and they don't have to miss an entire day. And they had all these great things there, but the two things they didn't have were nutrition and meditation. And I brought mm-hmm. those both up. That mm-hmm. those are the easy wins. Those the are the things wins. that, that yeah. you can very inexpensively teach and, and foster uh, people to take care of those two parts of their lives that are going to help the spiral downward if if they don't have it. So I'm very pleased to hear that. And yeah. I hope if anyone from Manatee County School District is listening, they'll look into that.
1: <laughs> well, and I'll also share that at um, at the Florida Center, the organization where I um, am this fortunate enough to be the CEO, we, um, we have uh, an inclusion model preschool at both of our sites. And inclusion, for those that don't know, is children who are typically developing alongside children with disabilities, mm. Um, and we have adopted um, a curriculum called Mind Up. And it is, I don't know if you've heard of the, the, um, the Hahn Foundation in, in South Florida. Goldie Hahn is the founder, and it is a curriculum for um, schools. And we utilize that to help our children remain calm and regulated. Um, there's beautiful pictures we put on the wall, posters um, children understand what an amygdala is, a hippocampus, a prefrontal cortex, or their PFC, as they call it. And they understand what these parts of their brain do and how they impact their ability to get along with others, how they respond to others or to things or frustrations. So that is our little part of, um, of helping children, young children, preschoolers, um, learn how to be mindful in their day-to-day.
0: You know, one thing that you'll look around the office, you'll notice there's no overhead fluorescent lighting. Uh, that was something that I took out years ago when I took over the paper. And the impact that I found that's had, because there's a lot of research of, of how that overstimulates and all the different things. And when I go into schools and still sometimes see overhead fluorescent lighting, mm-hmm. I just, it's another thing. That's an easy win. Get rid of it. Yes. Uh, there, there, there are so many things like that that could impact, um, you know, the kind of music that we, we, we can have uh, uh, playing during breaks. Um, you can have anything from classical to jazz to different things that have been shown to um, impact the brain functions in a positive way on that two minute break, you know, walking between classes or so forth. They can have an impact when they sit down. And then if you supplemented that with one minute of, of uh, meditation, you know, at the start of every classroom period that came over the broadcast or something, uh, the amount that we might be able to turn that down and why this is going to become, I think, so important is we're only starting to understand the awful impact that the iGen gener- I generation is facing in terms of the phone. Mm. And the fact that these kids are also all carrying around a high-power computer in their pocket at all times that can just give them a constant onslaught of stimulation, a lot of it that's part of a negative feedback loop, Uh, the amount of stress and anxiety that's been reported from the generation, in fact, I just read a study uh, uh, yesterday, um, the generation that was born between 2006 and 2012, when um, smartphones and social media started to become you know, a completely integrated part of life, the amount of reported high severe levels of stress and anxiety skyrocketed among adolescents mm-hmm. and, and later teens. And then the impact in terms of starting from 2012 on, the uh, demand for... Um, uh, psychological services, mental health services at the college level started to become overwhelming. Where a lot of these colleges are reporting, we had a three hundred percent increase in demand for mental health services all of a sudden, and now they're tracing it back and saying, "Well, yeah, that that is absolutely an impact of what that phone uh, culture does to children." So again, we we're probably now raising a, the generation who will be now. Obviously, there there are some strengths that come with it. They can absorb information much faster. They can scan information and glean uh, and retain data from it better than we ever could. They can type faster with no typing um, instruction <laughs> or, or system. You know, so there are certain things that are sort of rewired in the circuitry to an advantage. But the thing that we know is that that makes you less skilled at being able to d- detach and relax mm-hmm. and to put you know, mindfulness up front. Mm-hmm. So we're creating the generation that is probably going to be the least naturally inclined toward mindfulness. It seems like the least we could do is try to offset that by, by teaching them, okay, it's not going to work probably at this point in the game without some sort of really, really uh, heavy handed regulation of, of social media, um, which I doubt we're going to see given, you know, big tech's influence on government. So if, if, this is going to become a permanent part of life. Then I think we really have to start looking at strategies to help children with the other side of that. You know, because the it really bothers me when I hear older people talking about, well, oh, it's problems of phones. All you know, the phones in their hands, and the phones in front of them. Who gave them the phones, man? You know, right. there's no seven year old that's bought their own phone that I've ever seen.
1: Right. Right. No, and, and you know, the things that you bring up, I, I certainly have experienced myself. My children were born in that time frame that you mentioned, so I definitely have, have seen it myself. Um, it's it's something that we have, you know, as as caregivers, I think it comes back to us to help set those limits, right? We set those set those boundaries and limits around what they can have, what apps they can have, and what, um, what we're allowing them to look at, because half of the battle, I think, is some of these apps that they're looking at, and, and the the feedback that they're getting from viewing the things within these apps, so.
0: Yeah, one of the things that was brought to my attention recently was TikTok, for example, the, which of course is a Chinese company and there's a different version of TikTok and it's a uh, Mandarin name that they use in China. And in China, that version of the app has all these uh, uh, sort of, um, you know, guide rails built in it. Like for example, I think it's at like 11 o'clock at night if you're 14 and under, it turns off and you can't oh, access it. So there's not only like a, hey, you're not going to use it, but there's no FOMO effect. You know, they're not oh, worried about what right. other kids are posting. And right. so th- that, that's part of the problem when you take it away from just yeah. your kid, right? And then another thing is that, like it prompts them to take breaks. Like if they've been scrolling mm-hmm. too long, there's no, the endless feed effect as they call it. They're, they, it will stop and it will say, hey, Would you maybe rather do an outside activity? Would you rather get some exercise? And then they require that the algorithm has STEM uh, rewards in it and patriotism and different stuff, Mm. whereas it's very, very different from the algorithm of the American version that you see.
1: Yes, it is very
0: different. Let me ask you, so as a parent, one of the things that I struggled with, my child was born in 2004, and I was very much apprehensive. So he was the last person among his friends and classmates to have a cell phone. So we, we finally gave him one. He had skipped a grade. So he was only like, uh, I want to say 11 when he started middle school. So, and because like, if there was, he was a car rider. So there was not a guarantee that there would be an adult there. So we're like, okay, one of us got a flat tire and a way mm-hmm. to picking him up or something. You know, he needs to have a way to communicate to us or, or vice versa. So we got him the, you know, the, the basic phone, the cricket or whatever, so that there would be some sort of communication device. But, he was the only kid at that point that not only didn't have a phone, but then he gets one. He's the only kid without a smartphone. And then we started seeing the socialization impacts of it where it's like, Oh, wait a minute. We're harming him in that sense Mm -hmm. because he's not getting included in anything. They're on group Mm -hmm. chats and that's how they're deciding what they're doing at recess and who's sitting mm-hmm. with who at lunch and mm-hmm. what's happening after mm-hmm. school and all these different things where we're freezing him out of the main socialization aspect mm-hmm. of all his peers. So you think you're doing something that you're preserving. And then I'm looking at it, you know, by the time he's 12, 13 and I'm like extrapolate this to where he's in his twenties and thirties. And am I harming him? Mm-hmm. Am, am I making him less capable of, of functioning in society. You know, well, where you look at it now, like we have these, he's a freshman in college and we have these weird conversations where it's like, I'll say things like, hey, do you know that uh, there was a time when you didn't just date girls that you met on an app. <laughs> like right. sometimes, there was a time when you could actually like approach someone in a Starbucks and yeah. start a conversation and maybe exchange right. phone numbers and he's looking at me like I had two heads. Like that would be <laughs> creepy. Um, the, the, the world has changed so rapidly in that sense um how have you as a parent like tried to approach things with trying to have the balance between i want my child to be protected from some of the negatives of this but then how do i not make them feel like they're now cash socially
1: those are some of the conversations that my husband and i had those exact conversations um you know, we, we did start out getting them a a smartphone around sixth grade. So they, they had the, I mean, I mean, they had kids in third grade, you know, that had smartphones. So, um, you know, so by the time they were in sixth grade, excuse me, they had, they had their smartphones, but then in terms of for, for us, the apps that they were allowed to they're we're all on the same plan. So we can see what's happening, what apps are being downloaded. Um, But the apps for me were were more where I focused, what apps they could download, what apps they could be on, um, and then checking their, you know, you can check their online screen time, monitoring all of that. And making sure that I had um, the ability to look at their phone and see their phones go on the counter at night. They're on in a basket, right? They're not in your room with you. When he comes
0: home from college, <laughs> it still has to be outside the bedroom. Doesn't go into the bathroom, and it doesn't go into the bedroom. Right, That's right. just two rules. Yeah, I
1: mean, and and I remember having conversations with my, you know, I have a boy and a girl, and my daughter wanted, I think it was Snapchat or. Instagram or something. She wanted those. And, you know, maybe sixth grade, seventh grade, she wanted those. And it's, it, she didn't get them right away. It took some time. I had to understand what, I didn't even understand what Snap. I've never had a Snapchat account. Right. I don't know. I didn't really understand it. And um, so just understanding your kid too, and what they're capable of doing. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to be a parent, especially if you're working and you got other mm-hmm. obligations and really staying on top of it. It's real easy just to hand them the phone and let that be their, their entertainment and their, Babysitter and, and really take kind of a back seat and kind of not monitor it, but you really have to because there's a lot that they can get into. And really educating them about the dangers, especially my daughter, I made sure she knew about the dangers of um, of those apps and the internet. And yeah, how- M-
0: much more difficult. In fact, uh, the same study I was reading was showing that the impact of social media on females is drastically worse than it's been on males. And mostly because of the heightened uh, impression they get of how much better other people's lives are than theirs. So this sort of, uh, you know, everybody presents this perfect Mm -hmm. self in in social media and filtered pictures Mm -hmm. and everything like that. And the studies had shown that females have a much more negative return from that um, and that feeling of inadequacy and everything that, that it creates. And then just, I mean... God, some of the things I see with my, so my son's in college, but he's 17. And the the pressure that's on females today in terms of, and I I hate to be sort of based like this, but I'll I'll give an example that was extremely troubling to me, was he showed me his Tinder account, which even as a 17 year old is the only way you date today, right? Um, And there is not, a 17 or 18 year old girl at all that he showed me went through every single one that didn't have a picture of herself in a thong on the, Mm -hmm. he's like, that's required. Every, every girl has one. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, that blew me away. Like as a parent, I only have a boy. So like, I'm grateful that I didn't have to go through that. But the idea that, that, that is considered a norm now. And the pressure is on a female to, to sexualize herself Mm -hmm. that way Mm -hmm. to strangers at an, early age and that it's completely normal across society, uh, it really, I found it very, very troubling.
1: It it is very troubling. And you're just my little experiment I have at home with a boy and a girl growing up together, my experience has been just that, that my son has had limited impact. My daughter, um, luckily, I have been very blessed with a a young girl who has a very good head on her shoulders. And she actually... if she sees somebody's account that is questionable, a, a young girl her age, my children are 14, that are um, that is overly sexualized at their age, my daughter is like, Mom, look at the, what on earth? I mean, mm-hmm. she's very disturbed, and she recognizes that that's just not what needs to happen, that you don't need to um, be sexualized. You don't need to show these provocative pictures online, but that's what's happening. And then my question is who's monitoring these right. accounts? And, and if somebody is monitoring them, that's scary because that means you're okay with your daughter posting, right. a 13, 14-year-old posting these provocative pictures. Well, you even themselves. see that
0: with the spillover, in, m- in my experience, you go to the beach and you'll see you know young you know, adolescent females um, in revealing bathing suits that mm-hmm. you're looking like. Somebody left or leave the house like that um, and come to a giant crowded public place. Uh, So the way those norms are changing, I find distressing. And then a correlation or possible correlation that that I've seen uh, that I find very troubling. For example, I covered Gasparilla this year and um, it was my first time ever there. And that's, of course, right by University of Tampa. And one of the things that I found very, very disturbing was the enormous amount of of incredibly inebriated young females that were at the festival, mm-hmm. um, and in, in a conversation with my son, he said, "Dad, you if you went to frat row at USC on a Friday night, uh, you'll just see girls vomiting in the street. You'll see them stumbling, falling over, mm-hmm. you know, three at a time, helping each other walk down. It, it's it's troubling. And when you look at, to me, I, I wonder what correlation is in there between the idea that we have." female teen suicide attempt rates mm-hmm. in particular up very high since social media. Um, the, the over-sexualization we talked about and then this, you know, sort of... Because that's one thing that had gone down for a long time was teen alcohol use. Mm-hmm. Um, but the amount of alcohol abuse that I see from young females, mm-hmm. uh, I find it staggering. And, and and I look at that and my, my heart's really, <laughs> you, you know, bleeds for what this generation of young girls must be feeling when these things are becoming so incredibly normal to witness Mm
1: -hmm. it's you know going just going back to to the pictures one of the things that i i want to emphasize and and that i do emphasize with my my daughter and my son too um is that you know obviously there's nothing wrong with with A woman's body right we don't want children girls to think there's something wrong with with their body i i I think the problem is that um it can be dangerous for young women to have um you know and again i i personally don't think some of the pictures are what i would consider tasteful in terms of um you know pictures of them in bathing suits and that sort of thing but it can be dangerous to have that kind of thing out there, especially when you're young and impressionable and, and naive, quite frankly, about what kinds of dangers can, can be out there on the Internet. So it really is um, just from a precautionary, just be one, be careful and know that there are people out there who will prey on you and are looking for a, a young woman um but also to to be respectful of your body and know when the right time is to show it and and how to show it and and that you don't need to um show provocative pictures on on your accounts in order to get attention um you know the whole alcohol alcohol use with teens luckily i have not had to ex- i have we haven't had any experience with that yet um we're very fortunate but um, I have, we have friends and we hear that it is something that is unfortunately um, happening. It continue. I mean, I, I know in high school, I remember it happening when I was younger, but um, it does seem to be, um, there does seem to be an increase more so than I recall hearing in years past.
0: Yeah, there seems to be, when he was in high school, alcohol wasn't as prevalent because it was harder to get. And the, probably the most prevalent uh, substance that children were using were vaping cannabis. Huh. And because it was actually much easier as was described to me to acquire a vape pen with cannabis in it than it was to get alcohol. Um, and it seems like though, as they hit the college age and then alcohol becomes available, it's almost like uh, the the response to it is, is I guess less gradual because mm. all of a sudden it's like, Oh, we can get alcohol whenever we want. Mm. And uh, that's troubling. The other one, of course, with the phones on the mail side is, well, and, and has an impact on both of them is the presence of pornography. That that you, We have the first generation and I'm very, very concerned on the long-term effects of what that's going to mean. Like I, when I talk to young men in their 20s and hear about the way that has changed their romantic experiences, um, I worry that we're going to have a generation of people who have no ability or understanding of creating intimacy and shared experience within a relationship that they're going to become completely desensitized to what any of that means. And and the, 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 the way at which that sort of seems to have devolved that part of humanity into a much more base context, uh, in a very, very quick period of time. Um, that, and, and, in addition to the, the the physiological part, you know there was a uh, there was a, a a big feature on in Time Magazine in 2017 on it, and they talked about how the impact on brain function and where you know uh, young males were developing um, sexual dysfunction because the amount of brain stimulation that they would experience from Pornography online, where most of them had four or five tabs opened at once. Um, the the acts became more and more, you know, base and progressive. That the idea of a physical interaction couldn't compete in terms of mental simulation with what they were used to. Um, so the, the the again, it seems like we have this immensely powerful device. I'm holding my mm-hmm. phone right now that every year becomes almost by orders of magnitude more powerful in terms of what it can deliver to you, how fast and and how free. Uh, I don't think we're putting a lot of thought into, hey, what's that gonna look like in 10 years or 20 years or three generations? Mm-hmm. And I don't wanna sound like an old fogey, but like the vast majority of my concerns in life um, and in our society, Mostly traced back to this phone culture.
1: So, what keeps coming to mind as we're talking about the phone and the phone, children having a relationship with their phone, is the need to, to not forget that children need to have a relationship with their parents, mm-hmm. a meaningful relationship. And, um, and, and in the, the world of, of infant mental health, that is my background. Um, when we do the work with children and families, we are treating the relationship. We are looking at the quality of the parent-child relationship, and that starts from the moment they are born, and it continues throughout their lifespan. And, of course, it shifts and changes as they grow older, and we know that that looks, you know, the relationship you have with your 2-year-old looks different than the relationship that you have with your 15-year-old. But nonetheless, if you have a healthy foundation early on, uh, it, it's going to going to reap you know benefits, and it's it's hard to do that, um, it, but you have to be intentional. Mm-hmm. And we know that we know that having an emotionally available caregiver uh, available to us to be in relationship with has huge benefits and outcome. Right, the absence of an emotionally available caregiver meaning. Someone who can handle you and all of your ugly stuff, your, your feelings, your, your sadness, your crankiness, your grumpiness, your fear, your shame, someone who doesn't shame you, um, someone who can hold all of that and not make you feel badly or wrong for your feelings and be in support and relationship with you to help you work through those feelings. We call it sometimes, especially in early childhood, help you organize those feelings mm-hmm. is it, the absence of that has the same effect as trauma exposure. So when we don't have someone that we feel like we can connect with emotionally, that has major impact. So building those relationships, spending time with children, making time to to have them put their phone away, connect with them um, even as they get older – it's absolutely necessary and we can't forget the impact and we're the parent at the end of the day we're the parent we decide when they when they are on their phone and when they're not and then if they have those healthy connections that that very well could deter them from the need to seek out other types of of stimulus right so put it, if you put in the work on the front end hopefully it's going to reap dividends on the back end
0: yeah no question i the one piece of advice i give to parents when they ask is my son and I's relationship in terms of we had an intimacy and a openness that was literally without limits to the point where a lot of people sometimes questioned the conversations I was willing to have with them but my mindset was always if he's old enough to ask we need to have the conversation Mm. to whatever degree is age appropriate, Mm -hmm. but we need to have, because otherwise they're going to, especially in this day and age where everything's at their fingertips, they're going to get that somewhere else. And, you know, when I thought back to how many, you know, important conversations in life I had with like a friend's older brother instead of my (laughs) parents and how wrong Mm -hmm. they got it in most instances, (laughs) uh, I didn't want that to be the case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it resulted in a, in a situation where he was, abnormally comfortable with me coming with anything and not feeling like he was gonna be judged for it, not feeling like he was gonna be in trouble for it. And when my friends today hear of the level of intimacy he shares with me, they're blown away. But it's like, well, you can't get that when they're adults. Like that—that that was the foundation. That's was right. we can talk about anything, That's right. and I don't have to be embarrassed at all. In fact, the one person I can go to if it's uncomfortable is my dad, and right. he's gonna, you know, hey, that happens to everybody. Let me talk mm-hmm. to you about it and and give you the the real thing on it. Um, and you're right, if you don't if you don't put that front end work in, I, I don't think you get that. I don't think you say when you, hey, you're 20 now, ask me anything. (laughs) It doesn't work that way, right? No,
1: no. And no, and it is, it does take time. And the parent has to recognize the way that the relationship ebbs and flows as Mm -hmm. their child grows. That's a challenge for many parents. They want to continue to have the same kind of relationship that they had with their child when they were five and 10 and 15. And we have to change as our children change, because what they need from us at various ages is different. And oftentimes we struggle there's, and I'm sure, I don't know if you felt it or not, but there's, there's a loss almost. Oh, no question, no you question. Know, yeah. where you feel like you're missing out or you don't have the kind of relationship mm-hmm. that you would like to have with them or that you used to have um, because other things are important to them. Right. Um, and you're kind of like this, other person that they need maybe when just when they need something they call you when they need money or they just need to talk but other than that just be there and be available for me whenever i need you and it feels very one-sided but i think as a parent you have to understand that that's just the way it is Mm -hmm. and it's okay for you to be there you've created this person who's independent who's going to reach out to you when they need you um and and that's how it should be right
0: the other great advice that i'd gotten was that same, uh, uh, professor of, of, um, human development at Penn, uh, made reference to the idea that he said, when you're dealing, you know, so we were there at a symposium, um, right before my son was in a program that was taking a college course at Penn going into his freshman year. And, uh, the, you know, so it it was all high functioning, gifted, you know, um, kids coming out of middle school and the, the, most striking piece of advice he he gave us all was for the vast majority of human history, this was the age where they got married and went on their own. So at adolescence, at sexual maturity, their brains are hardwired to become independent. It's supposed to. And he used the uh, analogy of a bird leaving the nest. And he said, when you think about that, that a bird is in a nest, with its mother bringing food back to the nest, literally chewing it up and putting it in its mouth for it, right? <laughs> it couldn't have it any easier, safer, or better than up in that nest where, where its mother does everything. And then he said, now you think about flying. It's not like walking. We get to get up and fall a few times and you know take our bumps. They then somehow have to... Assume, hey, I'm going to jump out of this thing and uh, start flapping my wings and hope that I don't go crashing into the ground like my instincts might tell me I will uh, and leave this perfectly safe environment. That has to be so hardwired into the species, otherwise it would never do it. So by the same token, your child now is hardwired into this, oh, I'm supposed to go out on my own now. It doesn't know that we pushed that back four or five years, you know, Bye. in the last couple hundred. Um, so they're, they're already starting, they're, they're hardwired to challenge you, to start asking, and, and to start assuming they know best because that's what they were supposed to have done. And... You have to look at it not as defiance and as challenge. You have to look at it as building the confidence to make decisions on my own so that I can take care of myself when you're not there to cushion the fall. And that was like this aha moment where it turned my whole mind around where, oh my God, this isn't like, this isn't defiance. It isn't disrespect. It is innate, you know, curiosity of I need to get stronger. I need to start preparing for you not being there. And how I do that is challenging your way of thought with ideas of my own. And that needs to be encouraged and facilitated. And yes, you you, you know, give your advice and your input and hey, consider this and that from my experience, but sometimes they have to scrape their knees and in, in sort of getting that that ability.
1: That's part of the developmental process right? What you talk about is what is absolutely just what they do. And, you know, in the, in the early years, we tell the parent fam, families the same thing, you know, a lot of parents because of their own trauma, they their child, you know, at two or even earlier goes off and wants to go explore their environment. And if a parent has trauma, or abandonment issues that can feel very different when your child leaves you to go explore their environment. And so helping parents understand that's part of the developmental process. This is what they're supposed to be doing. This has nothing about them, you know, to do with them wanting to leave you. It has everything to do with them doing exactly what they're designed to do. So, you know, going back to when we understand what it is that's happening, we we can perceive it, look at it um, in the way that we should through a different set of glasses. So, um, yeah. That's
0: something also that... I read recently the idea that safetyism um, as a culture coming from good places where people become more educated and we've seen, okay, not wearing seatbelts causes a lot of deaths and, you know, not having helmets when they ride bicycles causes a lot of deaths. And, um, you know, leaving your kid unsupervised could lead to them getting abducted or, you know, so over, you know, learned history, we've responded by, you know, sort of nerfing cert- certain parts of childhood and we're also, as Western culture, having much less children. So whereas, you know, and we're getting more education. So and whereas the parent was more typically an 18, 19-year-old person with a high school education and five children, where there had to be a lot of, like, children co-parenting with the children. Um, and there had to be a lot of, like, trusting in that because you only have two sets of eyes and five kids, mm-hmm. you know, in the household. Um one of the unintended effects of that has been that it creates a sense of potential danger among children that is new, you know? And it, and it now we're starting to see that, oh, that can heighten perceptions of anxiety. Mm-hmm. That can heighten perceptions of um, exposure to anything I'm comfortable with is actually dangerous to me instead of something that's going to build resilience and so forth. So, mm-hmm. you know, another one of those areas where it's like you change one thing we have a thing in economics where it's like you change one thing in the economy and you automatically change five more you didn't intend to i think that's kind of broadly throughout society is that we have to wrestle with even as our experiences and our practices as well intentioned as they are to curb you know certain negative effects we don't always know what the you know spin-off effects of of all those practices are and uh and then, as as you pointed out, if you add into it a parent that themselves had negative things happen to them, which in these situations that you're dealing with, they're much more much more likely. Um, then, how much more likely are they going to be to intervene and and impede the uh, child's you know development of independence and so forth?
1: Yeah, so their w- worldview is different than somebody else's worldview who maybe didn't have those experiences mm-hmm. and. Um, how do you help someone be aware of that, right? So that our history is very present in the moment. It's not something that happened back then. It's, it's with us. We carry it with us everywhere we go. And how do we understand that and make sense of it? It doesn't necessarily... Um, decide our future it's something that we just need to understand and we need to understand how it impacted us you know parenting comes naturally but it comes naturally the way you learned it and so if we learned it incorrectly Mm -hmm. um we, you know, we don't know what to do except what we learned. And a lot of parents say, well, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what happened to me. Well, that's not necessarily what we want either because then we've got two polar opposites here. Or pole, you know, so we want, to, we want to make sure that we know what to do. We want to know what is the best response to things. How do we recognize our own triggers, our thoughts? And one of the modalities we use it's called shark music. It's this kind of dun da-na, this kind of intrusive thought that comes from somewhere in the past. But it's it's not it's not something we should be afraid of. It's something we should just recognize and then put it in its proper place and know that it just it, it isn't that person in front of you, isn't that person from back then. That this is somebody else. It's your child or it's your new relationship or whatever. And so to just recognize when our our intrusive thoughts start to come in and something's triggering us or impacting us and making decisions in our present.
0: You know, one of the most uh, sort of odd things that I observed in parenthood, and I observed it with uh, my ex-wife. We had a great co-parenting relationship. Um, We were very invested in, you know, trying to do all the right things. But one thing that I noticed, and and as I recognized it in both myself and her, I started seeing... A sort of common thread even with my parents and other people I've seen the things that I would respond most strongly to my child doing or I I should say not as well or as patient was when I would see him show a trait a negative trait that I could see in myself. Mm. So when I would see him acting in frustration or something in a way that reminded me of a shortcoming of my own I would be more harsh in my criticism of that behavior. And I, I think it, I have to guess it probably goes back to this, you know idea that you pass this gene or, or behavior on and, and you're frustrated because we're always trying to improve the gene pool as, as, as we move forward. But that was that was just something that always sort of stuck out to me was it seems like the very the most offensive things our children can do to us is repeat, something we don't like about ourselves
1: well and that certainly causes us to look at ourselves and go wow i wonder i wonder why that's happening right <laughs> you know? right i wonder where they learned that from so um yeah we and we need to change too and quite honestly if they're doing something that maybe they learned mm-hmm. from us or they observed us doing that's a great moment to own our stuff yes come to them and say you know what i saw you doing such and such and you know i do that a lot too and I don't like it. And I'm sorry that I taught that to, or that you might've learned that from me, but if we can be accountability partners, perhaps if they're old enough to be, but you know, those, those opens up, open up great lines of communication, right. And the ability to talk through things we, we say again, in my field, when you, you know, you got to name it to tame it. So when Mm -hmm. you put it out there, you've called it out, you've said it, now you can do something with it.
0: Yeah. Being accountable to your kid and owning your mistakes, I'd say are are two very important things because again, they they see that and one it, it imposes that as an expectation on them like like the ability to say, hey, that was my fault and I overreacted and I really wasn't yelling at you. I was yelling at my boss or my coworker yes. or whoever had me upset when we got caught in this moment. Um, is rare mm-hmm. all throughout society. Like being able to say it to our partners, being able to say it to our friends, being able to say it to our coworkers, whoever. Let alone our children. But it's powerful because it's a powerful example. I don't think it's there's. Huge any more powerful example than when a child can see you're doing something you don't have to and it's probably uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because it's just as easy to say oh i'm the parent i said so
1: that's right you know well vulnerability with your children goes miles yes right because it helps them to be vulnerable too because not every child can't has the it's not natural for them to Mm -hmm. be not all children to be vulnerable it's not natural for adults some adults to be vulnerable but it's absolutely necessary to lean into those sharp edges right. and be very, very vulnerable with your children. Let them see you at your weakest moment, own it. And they are going to see you probably stronger than mm-hmm. they saw you before, right? Some, some people think it's, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to, you know, like you said, I'm the parent. That's not necessarily, your parents, kids aren't going to see you stronger. They're going to see you stronger when you're vulnerable.
0: Yeah. And, and it also helps them manage their own uh, anxieties because then they see that it's normal, that, oh, this isn't, like, because that's that's probably the most challenging part of being a human is how many things we think are unique to us for mm. so long. And because everybody <laughs> else hides it, it's like, and then you sort of say, oh, everybody else has a voice right. that talks to them when they're trying to go to sleep every night too and tells <laughs> them all the awful things they don't want to hear and um, or when they wake up or whatever. Uh, so w- more, the more we can normalize, I think, these, these human experiences of yes you know your father is not perfect and here's what i did wrong there and here's here's how you try to avoid that and you know the one thing i well the phrase i would use to my son is it's a very unattractive trait you know, here, here's a ver- <laughs> yeah. this is it's very it's a bad look I hate this about myself when I react this way. It's not attractive as a human being to come across that way. So I would, you know, there's a good example of what not to do. <laughs> right.
1: It's not a good look. I like right. that. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much for coming, Dr. Christy Scoglin. Can you tell us real quick, where can listeners go to learn more about the Florida Center?
1: www.thefloridacenter.org. You can find all of our information there and um, read about all the wonderful things that we have going on.
0: Perfect. And can we give a quick plug, put you on the spot, but can we give a quick plug to anyone who might be thinking about fostering, where can they go to, to look into that process, see more what that looks like and see if it's something that might be a good fit for them?
1: Yeah. So I would have them start with the Safe Children Coalition. Uh, they do a lot of the the licensing of foster homes in our community, and they can um, go to their website, the Safe Children Coalition. They can go to their website and um, and see what they can do to help. In the fo- they always need foster families. I think they would be delighted to get um, get calls.
0: Yeah, and from, from personal experience, I can say that you know, if you're going to take up a cause, if you're going to, if, if you have anxiety about society and our future, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues you can take upon, the, whether they're environmental or, you know, we probably have the most active pet advocacy, you know, community that I've ever seen. Um, but if there's going to be one that actually invests in society itself and sees some of the negative uh, uh, problems that we have actually you know, be reduced, I can't think of a more impactful investment of your time than providing the sort of support that a foster family can give through a very, very challenged child's Mm -hmm. most difficult moments. Uh, The impact that we've seen firsthand and people that statistically were at much higher risk to end up in jail, addicted and or dead, you know, at a young age, instead being compassionate, empathetic, thriving members of our society, contributing to it instead of being a drain on it. Uh, literally, I don't know a way that you can impact the world more with with your time and investment than fostering a child.
1: Would love to see a lot of um, child-serving organizations Um Get a lot of donations this this month at the through the yes, giving challenge. Yeah, so, so the giving
0: challenge is coming up with the challenge match. You're going to be getting a lot of emails and solicitations, so that is definitely something to put your your money behind. And uh again, if it takes the village, as they say, That's right. and if we're all in it together the world will be a better place. All right, for Dr. Christy Scogling, I am Mitch Maley, and this has been the Bradenton Times Podcast. We'll see you next week. And for all of your fact-based news and analysis went out on agenda, join us anytime at thebradentontimes.com.